0: So what I'm going to do is try to explain to you the entire book of Isaiah in 30 minutes, with emphasis on verses 1 through 8 of chapter 40, and this will be a doubly impressive feat since I'll confess at the start I'm not sure I understand the book of Isaiah. Hmm? Uh, I think perhaps the most disappointing thing about graduating seminary for me, was actually realizing no one had explained Isaiah to me. And I thought at least the class Isaiah and the Prophets might have done that. That's a story you can ask me about. I was disappointed in the class, you can imagine. Um, But walking away, again, it never struck me that, you know, this is a question that the Ethiopian eunuch asked to Philip. (laughs) Can you explain this book to me? And by this again, I don't just mean that you know, comfort, comfort, ye my people, means Jesus Christ came. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. He will come again. You know the fulfillment of the passages that are easy to see are about Jesus, but that doesn't mean you understand Isaiah, because I know if you open it up to read it, you're like, what is going on? Until you get to chapters 36 to 40, and then it makes a lot of sense, and then it's back into maybe some happy things some pretty pictures about lions and lambs, right? But like the book, like, could you read it through? And Isaiah doesn't really help you because it's an ancient text. It's an epic poem before epic poems existed, so it's not even linear. <laughs> yeah? But it is poetry in Hebrew at an epic level. And that means that there are some, what, uh, high points in the story of the poem that can help us see what's going on. And that's what I would want to try to give you today is the high points of the story of the poem of Isaiah. And then when we get to chapter 40, again, we're going to stop for a moment real heavy. And and let's just use that as a jumping off point as well. So chapter 40, verse 1, is what the atheistic, skeptical, lying, cheating, thieving liberal pastors and scholars for 200 years have called Deutero-Isaiah, or Second Isaiah. And in the LCMS, we think we fought this battle years ago in the 70s. We didn't. People still believe that the latter part of Isaiah is not written by the prophet Isaiah. And the reason they think this is because if you're reading it in Hebrew, it obviously changes at 40, verse 1. It's just a different book it's like something happened here's the thing you know what happened was for chapters 36 to 39 that's what happened so there is indeed a book of isaiah that we could call second that he writes after jerusalem is saved and it does make a big impact on how he is as a man what he thinks why he says things it changes how he preaches because these prophets were just like us Most of them were not pastors when they were called. Can you imagine God shows up one afternoon? By the way, go correct your pastor and the church body and the country. (laughs) Have fun with that one, yeah? Um, Make sure he really showed up, (laughs) yeah? Uh, That's what Isaiah does in a time of utter collapse for not only the kingdom of Judah, but also the kingdom of Israel to the north. Remember, we went through this many times. It's always worth refreshing. David's son Solomon does pretty well, expands the kingdom is a gift from God, wiser than anyone ever was. His son Rehoboam, not quite the same guy. Kingdom gets split in half north and south, and from then on, it's a battle back and forth. North and south is an easy way to remember it. Israel and Judah is sort of how they actually talk about it in the Bible a lot. Uh, although it shows up as well as Ephraim and Judah, and from that you maybe can learn to hear, oh, it's about Joseph and Judah, and so it's actually about the end of Genesis, right? Uh, and and the fight that is continuing to go on for the power and all of that at the point where Isaiah is now coming and called. Which let's find Isaiah, by the way. Let's let's get into the text. Okay, so um, if you're going to your pew Bible, you can find the book of Isaiah, chapter forty, at page five ninety nine. But then I want you to go from there back to the front of the book, page your way back to the front of the book. You got your own Bible. Get there. Get to the front of Isaiah. It'll take me a moment, too. Uh, right after Song of Songs, as if that would help, it's right in the middle of your Bible, too. If you just open it, you're going to hit either Psalms or Isaiah most of the time, right? So it's easy to find it that way. Um, so we're not going to dig into chapter one, but just look at verse one, Right. The visions of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. There is a history that this book is behind. And that history is in Kings and Chronicles. And then this book touches on it for a moment with a few more details in chapters 36 to 39. But really what's going on here is behind the history. And this is the hardest part about the Bible. If I ever get to manage like a multi-million dollar publishing house and reprint the Bible, we're gonna put it in an order that helps you see when Isaiah is next to what king. There's a way to do that. There's a way to see this, and it's not the way we've laid it out. That said, here we go again. Behind all of this is a history of King King Ahaz particularly. And then King Hezekiah. Ahaz bad, Hezekiah good, that's probably all we need for today. Uh, Isaiah is called to go tell Ahaz, however, even though he's bad, he's a terrible, terrible king, he's called to go tell Ahaz that God is with him. And this is what happens in chapter seven. So if you you turn to chapter seven, uh, you'll notice it'll say something like, Isaiah sent to Ahaz. And what I just want you to see particularly, oh, I gotta find it in in my text here, uh, there it is. Um, verse 13, verse 14, verse 14. What he says to Ahaz, the bad king. Isaiah says to him, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The context of that statement is is. Very powerful. I do preach about it about every second or third Christmas to the level where I've grown kind of bored of it, actually. I've told the story so many times. But what's going on here is that Ahaz is a bad king. He's doing everything absolutely, totally wrong. And as a result, God is letting Joseph win. And so the northern kingdom is kind of doing much better. They're forming alliances, they're getting money, and they're going to impose their will on Ahaz. In fact, they plan to get rid of him entirely. By name. And God sends Isaiah to say to Ahaz, so by the way, I'm your God, I'm with you. They're not gonna do anything to you. They can't touch you, so believe in me now. And Ahaz says, "Um, that's I won't test him like that. <laughs> it's the most unbelieving answer you can imagine, right? He, like, he doesn't even understand how good he has it. He's like, oh, I don't know. You know. And the result is, well, then I'll have a virgin give birth to a son. And before this baby is full grown, everything I just said to pass, which is that, The country that you're afraid of won't be able to destroy you and you will emerge victorious will happen before that baby is full grown. Scholars like to debate about who that baby would be. Of course, finally that baby is Jesus, but it's also talking about this time. It's very evidently talking about this time. I don't want to spend time debating about how the typology of it works. What I want to be clear to you is this. Okay. So Ahaz is sitting here, Uh, thinking he has an enemy to the north. His God says, don't worry about your enemy. I got you covered. He says, I'm not going to listen to God. Why? Because he's already got a plan is why. He already knows what he's doing is why. He has already sent official messengers to a foreign power even further away saying, hey, if you come help me with this, I'll help you with everything forever. That foreign power is called Assyria, and they were like super foreign power. Before there was Rome, there was Assyria, and between them are like Babylon and Persia, right? But Assyria, a 1,000 years, a long time that they really reigned in their area, and they were brutal. There's there's a fascinating history about how terrible they are. Um, That said... He calls to them for help. And now, here, right after Isaiah says, a virgin's gonna conceive, bear a son, and then Assyria itself is gonna come and destroy your enemies, like you asked. And then it's gonna come and destroy you. That's how the book starts. And from chapter 7 on then, we continue to see the story of Isaiah, his family. There are some children born. They're probably not the one the prophet's talking about in chapter 7. Again, it's way too long for a 30-minute time period. But emerging out of chapter 11 and the consistent promise that there will emerge from David's line a king who will save the people from Assyria... Yeah? We enter into a bunch of condemnations of all the countries that Assyria is going to destroy and how they deserve it. So from chapter, say, 12 until chapter 36, big chunk against Tyre, against Babylon, against Jerusalem. All of it is interesting reading if you put it beside your daily newspaper, let me tell you. Not so much because you can say, oh, this country is that country. No, 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 no. Because what they're being condemned for is what all of us are doing That's what's fascinating and terrifying, and I hope it makes you think, God, Jesus help us, because he will. (laughs) But that's the warning of that whole section, that Isaiah is preaching this whole time to the whole area, and no one's really believing except young King Hezekiah, who I don't think is the fulfillment of the promise, and that's, again, that's another story. But Hezekiah does believe. And so when Ahaz is dead and Hezekiah is face to face with the Rabshakeh of Assyria in chapter 36, now we have a very, very small and faithful remnant gathered into the city of Jerusalem around the temple and the Ark of the Covenant and a king who believes if he will just bow his knee in simple obedience to the fact that his God made him king well then, God will fight for him. That's chapter thirty-six, and that's what I really want to look at here. Let's let's get up to that. Okay, uh, find your way there in your Bible. This story is again epic. If they made a movie about it, they'd ruin it because they change everything when they make movies. <laughs> you know that, right? Uh, but it, it has all of what movies appeal to us for. All of it is here in this, this story. And uh, we're going to try to just read a lot of it and, and let it go because there's enough here to take, you know, seven, eight minutes of reading. But it's, it's worth it. All right. Here we go. Chapter 36, and I'm reading from the New King James. Uh, now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them, right? So the country has fallen. All that's left is the capital city, right? Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, this is a character who is his, his viceroy, his voice, uh, you know, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, this is the mouth of Sauron, right? You know, he's, he's sent out to do the bidding for the Dark Lord, right? Uh, Assyria sent the Rabshakah with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. Well, Lachish is where the even greater army of Assyria is that's preparing to destroy Egypt, which they more or less will do. But in the meantime, right? Actually, no, they will not do because of Jerusalem. Forgive me. They would have done if not for Jerusalem. They're preparing to destroy Egypt. In the meantime, he sends a small army to just go ahead and destroy Jerusalem, who, remember, he has a treaty with. <laughs> like, this is not honest politics here, right? This his power, He sends the army and his viceroy, Rabshakeh, and Rabshakeh stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. That is where we just were in Isaiah 7, by the way. When Isaiah is talking to Ahaz with the prophecy about, behold, behold, that's where they are, the Fuller's Field, right there. Oops, God's watching. God's watching. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Right? So out comes the party of the good guys to talk to the bad guy in front of the walls of the city. They're, they're going to pretend to be really serious, and, and they have, they're dressed all nice. right? We have power, right? But they're facing something that they know they cannot resist. Yeah? Uh, then the Rabshaka said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, right? Here's your message for your king. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? I say, you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. It will go... so So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you will say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Yeah, I'm going to interject here a little bit. There's so much subtext here. You know, fake news. (laughs) Fake news right there, right? Uh, No, Hezekiah has not taken down the altars of Yahweh. Uh, That's not what he's done. So Rapshika's stories are a little mixed. He doesn't quite understand that what Hezekiah has done and the reason Hezekiah has not submitted to Assyria is because God said take down the high places and don't submit to Assyria. So Rapshika hears this idea that Hezekiah is forming a cult, Really, right? And he comes with power to say, now, 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 don't do this. And he can't imagine that Hezekiah is not forming a cult. He's actually trusting in the true God, Jesus Christ. He can't even imagine that because he's so wicked himself, right? He has no, no way to believe in such things. And you you watch him set his own trap here. He, he The rapture will destroy himself with his own mouth. Uh, he goes on and says, now therefore I urge you, Give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. Now, this is important. He's making fun of Hezekiah. He does not really plan to have peace with Hezekiah at all. He says, we'll make a treaty with you before we destroy you. If you could show us 2,000 men who can get on horses to fight us, we'll give you the horses. He's scoffing. He's scoffing. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? By the way, the enemies of Isaiah have been preaching for a treaty with Egypt. They've preached this up to this point, and uh, Isaiah's preached against that. Yeah, uh, chapter, uh, verse 10. Have I now come up with the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So now he claims that he's actually uh, sent by Jesus to destroy Jerusalem. Huh? That, that Rabshika or Senechirub has had visions of the Christ saying, go and do this. It reminds me of one of my favorite stories of Genghis Khan, who responded to a letter from a Christian king saying, um, you can't attack us, we are the people of the true God. By the way, Christian king, a dilapidated, corrupt Eastern of the Byzantium Christian kingdom. Uh, you can't fight us. We are the true God. And, and Genghis Khan said, no, no, no. Uh, I've read those books. Your God doesn't like what you're doing. And, and, he, <laughs> and he comes and he destroys the kingdom. Um, that's, that's how power again is. Why do I love it? Because it's scary. And it reminds me to pray to Jesus for help. That's why. Uh, so what happens? Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, <laughs> Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, they're so against a wall right now. For we understand it, and do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So after Rabshiah says all this, they can't even come up with a good answer. They just beg him not to tell the people what he's saying. <laughs> and he's already speaking in Hebrew this guy's elite, this rapture guy, this guy's gone to a couple universities, you know, uh, served and whatnot. Uh, He knows what he's doing. Uh, But he says to them back, right, no way. Has my master sent me to your master and to you and to speak these words and not to the men who will sit on the wall, who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Now, the tactic here is then the people inside rebel and they take Hezekiah and they give him to, you know, a I and mean, he doesn't have to fight. That, that's the tactic, right? Um, but, but I mean, so you're the elite sitting there, like you're the bait now, right? Uh, in times of collapse, being rich makes you the bait. It's actually true. Uh, so verse 13, and then the rapture stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrews, right? He talks to everybody. Hear the words of the great king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. Now hear that again as, don't let him make you trust in Jesus, saying, Jesus will deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me, and every one of you eat from his own vine. And every one of you from his own fig tree. And every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern. Quotes from Hebrew texts, by the way. This guy knows his stuff. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. So basically, come out peaceably, go home, and then we'll move you somewhere. And it'll be nice once you get there. You just won't have your cousins anymore, ever, but that's how they did it. They split up families and then you repopulated and you couldn't keep your culture. Theirs was too big and your culture died. Yeah, now they got TV for that. Verse 18, beware lest Hezekiah persuade you saying Jesus Christ will deliver us, right? So don't look back to God, he says. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Nobody else has been able to stop. No other god has been able to answer prayers. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? And you're like, who's that? And yeah, that's the point. Whoever they were, they were big. And who's that? Yeah, they're gone. Now, where are the gods of Sepharvim? Indeed, they are delivered. uh, I have delivered Samaria into my hand. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand? Now, here's where he really goes wrong, right? Who has saved anyone from me that Jesus? that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hands. So now he doesn't just boast against Hezekiah, he boasts against God, to God's face, by name, having studied the text in depth. Hmm? Here is the ambassadors, I give it to him. You wanna learn how to be a better person? Learn how to hold your tongue. They held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, ooh, Hezekiah gave him a command. You know, Hezekiah, like, put together four chapters in the book of Proverbs, right? I mean, he knows what he's doing, too. Uh, Hezekiah gave them a command, do not answer him. They shouldn't have said, speak in Hebrew or Aramaic, right? Then Eliam, son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shibna the scribe, Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Uh, I'd encourage you to read chapters 38, 37, 38, 39, this afternoon sometime, this week sometime. I'm going to summarize it here for the sake of time to get us to chapter 40. Right. So, you know, they come back to Hezekiah with all this. Hezekiah confers with Isaiah and he goes into the temple courts and he falls on his knees and he prays. And one night passes and the next morning, so far as anybody can see what happened, the army of Assyria that had come, its small army, not its whole army, but the army of Assyria that had come, they were just all dead every single one of them, except for a small contingent that escapes back to tell a cherub at, um, where did it say it was, Lachish, preparing for war against Egypt? Same night. Preparing for war against Egypt, they get back just in time for a cherub to have word that there is a problem back home. So he goes back home and within weeks, his sons kill him. That's how Jesus does it when you say Jesus can't do it. He is risen Hallelujah. The God who did this to these kingdoms for the sake of justice and peace among the poor of the land is the God who became Jesus Christ so that we could be saved from this tyranny in whatever age and time we live without having to hope in some human king to come along and bring about perfectness right now. That is the power of the church. That is the substance of Christianity. That is why from generation to generation, the word of God does endure forever. We see it in Christianity. That being said, the story is also about, not only about, but also about the fact that your God hears you when you pray, and he's bestowed upon you great and precious promises so that here's the thing about the New Testament. It's not that we don't have kings, Listen carefully. It's not that we don't have kings. It's that we're all kings. And we're all prophets. And we're all priests. And if you don't know what that means, you do need to read the Old Testament more. Because those are categories that like will change how you operate when you even go to the supermarket. I mean, really, when you believe you're a king, a prophet, and a priest walking through Walmart, you're a different person. It's hard to believe that in this age, though. The stories they tell you they come fast and they twist, you know, curveballs left and right. Here it is, though. What is Hezekiah told in the moment of greatest need against the biggest problem in which there's no possible way out? Just pray. And here we are, New Testament Christians, with that same promise given to us. Now, I'm not suggesting to you, I talked about this last week with this word prosperity, that the prosperity of the promises of the Bible is about your mammon. (laughs) If you think you're going to get to God and God's going to make you rich, and by that I mean feel great all the time or some kind of perfect whatever ideal you create in your head. No, you're going to bang your head against nature and the hammer of God over and over again until you realize that the suffering's not going to go away. The thorns and the thistles are not going to go away. And death is going to chase you until it binds you to the grave. And none of that's bad news anymore. Because the good news is a different kind of news. And it is a news about the kingdom coming, but it's the news about the kingdom coming right now that this thing is more of a game than a test, and that the freedom of the gospel is so that you can be free not bound by a yoke of slavery that prevents you from being who God created you to be while you wait for some other esoteric future that you can't imagine. Oh my goodness. At the pro-life event yesterday, it was great. I hope you come to one of these things. The carol sing in the rain. Golly, who would do this? But Conviction would do this. Uh, carol sing in the rain. Uh, we're working with the Roman Catholics here in town. They kind of run the, the pro-life group and, and they're, they're good Christians, except for when they pray to Mary and Michael and all that kind of stuff, which we just shut our mouths while they do that part. But in any case, they put together the little hymn book for the the thing yesterday, and it was fine. It was good. It had hymns that we know, but, you know, we Lutherans are particular about our hymnody, you see. <laughs> and and the words are very carefully chosen and kept from age to age and all this stuff. And they're not quite like that. And a lot of these, I think, just came from English traditional carol format. So they were old language. Not quite King James, but almost. I know it's a long story. But the, the, we sang a, a hymn. I can't remember which Christmas hymn. Someone tell me if they remember. That was four stanzas long and built, and built and built and built toward paradise, okay? So the whole thing is about how we're in sojourn from bad to good and in paradise when we finally get there. The last line of The song, we will all wait around. We sang. It's a bit of a letdown. In white robes, it did mention the white robes. I do think it's hard to get excited about that though, if you followed me. The idea that I have to just look forward to a life in which I suddenly get to do nothing except for sing. I can maybe, as a Christian now, after years of singing to Christ, think, okay. But, but what happens to life then? And the thing is, Isaiah shows us at the end of his book. No, 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 life will go on too. Worship isn't just when you sing out loud in church as a group. Worship is the lifestyle of the spirit and soul taught to praise God in all things. Hands, mouth, right? All that. Our hope then is now into then. And it never stops. That is the power of the resurrection, and that is the power of knowing that you are left here now on this earth no longer for yourself, but as a citizen in the kingdom. So if as a citizen in the kingdom, all you try to do is build your own lot then you're not really serving as a citizen in the kingdom, and God will do what God will do. If you are wise, he will bless your lot. If you are foolish, he will will destroy your lot. A citizen in the kingdom, though, studies the Proverbs and the Psalms, and so you will become wise, and God will bless your lot. But it's not about that. It's not about getting more. It's about being the people who don't need any more. Except we want to see each other thrive, heal, heal, and maybe not feel threatened by foreign powers at the gates. Right. So when I talk about those kinds of things, uh, another story. I mean, it's true. Last night, power went out uh, here. Two neighbors over, street light. Um. I don't know, breaker somewhere. Right. It was up again within two hours. Um, and I have to be very honest that it went through my head. I'll just say three words: Is this it? Eh, I texted some people, are we okay? Everybody roll check, you know? Um, I was most worried because the light was out at the street, and I know I had a visitor who's a young man staying at the Hebrew Collegium who had walked over here and was sitting here by himself. And I thought the lights put him in the dark by himself in winter with no light to cross to get home. So I was, I was definitely worried about that. Uh, but that first question, is this it? Right. I only share that so that whatever you think I'm talking about, you'll pray about it. <laughs> Not that that I would change, but that God would answer us by sending righteous government. We don't have to even agree what that means to pray for it. We just have to pray for it. And then find that in the scriptures, it means honest scales. So if you want to talk about anything publicly that I could, I think, as a pastor, talk about publicly as public sin, the dishonest scales of various interest rates and inflation moves and things like that. I mean, if you look at like Isaiah's time, that's what they were doing. <laughs> and then that's why the country falls and you can go and search secular information to find this all too. Why do I share this? It's not Isaiah. Isaiah's better. And I want you then to go from that fear or that anger or whatever it is to Isaiah and hear what happens after that army is destroyed. Now Isaiah preaches again. And what does he say in chapter 40, verse one? He says, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak to Jerusalem and cry to her, the war is over. Iniquity is pardoned. You're getting back double now. Whatever you lost comes to be more. And yes, that is the promise of how you should expect the life of the world to come to be. It's also the promise of your soul's experience every time you endure suffering as a Christian. With patient endurance, holding your tongue, and seeking for good words to say that build up in Jesus' name, you will find you receive double for whatever suffering you had. Everyone wants to feel better by watching something rather than by loving people. I didn't achieve our task today. We're at 30 minutes now, and there's still... 26 chapters. From this point on, though, Isaiah's got to be seen as a true prophet. Like he said it would come to pass, it came to pass. So now he's in a position where he's not prophesying about this problem that he's sent to confront. He's just given visions about the next problem, which is basically the book of Jeremiah, unto forever. So Isaiah lays out the way Jeremiah, unto Jesus, unto forever is going to go with his preaching in the last section. And the whole focus is on this suffering servant. So there's lots of Jesus feeling in there when you see this suffering servant who will work hard in order to reestablish the kingdom for us. And yet, as we go out the door here, that same servant is called by name Cyrus. One of the things that the liberals hate the most in Isaiah, second Isaiah, one of the reasons they have to have it be by a different guy hundreds of years later is because it mentions the king of Persia by by name, Cyrus, uh, you know, hundreds of years before he is born or exists. And that is the suffering servant of God, the Christ, who will restore Israel. And he does when he says to which one's the cupbearer, I forget, go back to your home. I like you, my good servant, go rebuild the temple. And just like that, the empire of Persia is rebuilding Jerusalem. And wow, when they brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. They went being a people who had nothing to being a people that were in power and in control of everything. And they were able to build based upon their faith. That again is the result of what Isaiah says will happen next after they don't repent and Jerusalem is destroyed, which gives you one more piece of wisdom. It's always about the generation. It's always about today. It's not about when you die, will you go to heaven if you're going to die 30 years from now. It's about what do you believe today? Who did you sing to today? Who made you fear today? And, And who gave you love today? In the name of Jesus, amen. Please rise for prayer.